Uh, you see our passage again today is Mark 13 for preaching. So if you want to turn there, I'll read this again just so we have the context so I won't get very far into uh, the exegesis. I will get a little further than last week, but there's a lot here, so I'm trying to not just uh, throw it all out there and, and make you try to f- sort it out. Um, and I'm trying to cautiously uh, approach it in a way that's helpful. Um, so, chapter 13, beginning in verse 1, And as he came out of the temple, that is Jesus, coming out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished or fulfilled? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginnings of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you should say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speaks but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not run back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter, for in those days there will be much or such tribulation as has not been seen from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand but in those days after the tribulation the sun will be darkened the moon will not give us light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in heavens will be shaken and then they will see the son of man coming in clouds with great power and glory and then he will send out his angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven from the fig tree learn its lesson as soon as its branches become tender Put out its leaves, you know that summer is near. 
So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. And truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Father, please add, uh, give your blessing to your word and give us understanding, ears to hear, eyes to see. God, teach us by your spirit today. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we began Mark 13 with sort of a short overview or really an introduction to the chapter and more specifically an introduction to eschatology, which I share with you just means simply the study of end times or the last days. And I try to put a lot of emphasis on the fact that no matter where we fall in our interpretation of this passage and others like it, other passages that we would refer to as prophecy, the Bible is very clear in the fact that Jesus is coming back one day. And when he comes back, he will judge the quick and the dead. He will destroy sin. He will destroy all of his enemies. And he will bring a new heaven and a new earth. And all those things we believe to be true. I hope that you believe all those things. They are true. But no matter what we believe about how those things will exactly come to pass, which system you fall into or don't fall into, the fact remains that these things will happen. And as I said last week, those things, the, sure, the surety that those things are going to happen should not frighten the people of God. These things are to bring hope. We are to anticipate them. Look for them. As Jesus said here, be ready for them. And I said to you last week, and I'll re-mention it, most of us have been frightened out of our britches over these things. We've been taught to be scared to death, that judgment is coming, that Christ is coming back, but before that, there are all these things are going to happen, and uh, who knows? And depending on which system you've been brought up in, if like most of us, you're brought up in a premillennial dispensational if you don't know what those words mean that's okay if you were brought up to believe the left behind books if that's your theology on end times is is uh kirk cameron running for his life or whatever in those movies you were taught to be afraid of these things they scare us but i read to you from our confession and i'll reread what our confession states this christ desires that we be firmly convinced that the day of judgment will come both to deter everyone from sin and to comfort the godly more fully in their, advers- in their adversity. So no matter what you believe about the end times, what the Bible is, teaches us is that the judgment that is to come for the people of God is simply to comfort us. It shouldn't bring fear to us. Because no matter what happens, Christ is coming, Right? And Christ is not, we are not the enemy of Christ. He is our Lord. Even if there is still this great tribulation coming and the left behind books were correct, hey, nobody but God can save us. Our end times prowess, our tribulation bunkers, dug and filled with tribulation rations purchased from Jim Baker, none of that's going to help you. 
If all that's true, your only hope is God, so don't even fear that. We just read from the Psalms. Michael read for us, Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. I think that's what Jesus is saying here. Hey, they're coming, but you don't have to be afraid. Why? As the psalmist said, because the Lord is the light of my salvation. Right? Consider Peter's words about this end time thinking, about this judgment that is to come. He says in chapter 3 of Second Peter, The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. But since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? You think Peter would go on to say, you ought to be scared, run for the hills, hide, prepare. No, he says, what ought we to be considering all these things? The world's about to be dissolved. Judgment is coming. What manner of persons ought we to be in holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. That word hastening means to desire earnestly. The Bible instructs the people of God to desire that day, not to fear it. Because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to God's promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, Peter says, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. So whatever the Lord allows us to endure His not coming back yet, we are to count as patience, uh, patiently as salvation. In other words, God is bringing his people to redemption. He was doing so in the first century. He's doing so today. And he will do so until Christ returns. And so again, what I want you to grasp as we go through this in the days ahead more than anything is that God is coming back and he is going to judge the world and he will destroy sin and death and all the things the Bible says. But don't live in fear of that. Live in anticipation of it. If we see it in our day, it will be a great thing. If it's two more thousand years from now, it will still be a great thing. But meanwhile, no matter what our tribulation, no matter what our disappointments, no matter what our trials, even in that, God is still accomplishing his purpose. He is still redeeming his people. And the church is still being built. And he will bring you through your trials. Right? Agreeing with these very words of Peter. Again, I think our confession agreeing with Peter says this. God's purpose for appointing this day of judgment is to manifest or reveal the glory of his mercy in eternal salvation of the elect. And to reveal the glory of his mercy and justice in the eternal damnation of the reprobate who are wicked and disobedient. And man, that's a hard thing for us to think about, but I think the Bible teaches that, and our confession points that out. Hey, no matter what comes, no matter how bad it is, God will be glorified, his mercy will be shown to the elect, and his justice will be shown in the damnation of the reprobate. Everything that's coming is for the glory of God and the good of his people. So I want you to rest in that. I'm afraid that too often our infatuation with the study of prophecy in the end times 
causes us to get wrapped up in our theories and predictions and the current events. And we forget the fact that Jesus is coming back to manifest his glory and his mercy in the eternal salvation of the elect, to glorify himself even in the damnation of the reprobate. And all of creation is groaning to see that day. Hey, creation is anticipating it. We ought to anticipate it. I know there's a lot of it we don't understand. I don't understand the glory of God being manifest in the damnation of the reprobate. I don't take joy in saying that, but I think the Bible teaches that. And though I can't understand how that's going to happen, even that will glorify God. And I think that's what prophecy does. Prophecy in the Bible is not for the purpose of guessing. It's not for solving riddles and seeing who's the most spiritual by solving the secrets of the Bible, which there really are no secrets of the Bible. But what prophecy does is guarantees us that God's sovereign decrees are going to be fulfilled and are being fulfilled and will continue to be fulfilled until he comes back. The people in Jesus' day could be confident that even if they were beaten, arrested, dragged before ungodly councils, betrayed by their own family, did you catch that? Sons will betray fathers and mothers. And that happened in the first century. And no doubt it's happened since then and will continue to happen. But even if that happens, God's people can rest in the fact that the judgment is coming upon the wicked and His grace upon His chosen people and the very gates of hell will never prevail against that. Or stop it. It will never thwart one of God's plans. And so, that's what I really wanted you to catch last week. And I really want you to catch that this week. And I won't do that over and over every week. But I, I will continue to, to try to drive home this point. That no matter what we discover in the text, the people of God are to take comfort in the coming of Jesus, not fear. So please... Be mindful of that. As we get to the text, and we'll go a little further today than we did last week, but not very far, I remind you of the context. Jesus and his disciples were leaving the temple. Christ has had the confrontation with the leaders of Israel. He had uh, overcome all of their silly attempts to put him in a corner or trip him up or cause him to say something that would get him into trouble. He was way too wise, way too knowledgeable of God's word and over and over again their attempts failed and Jesus is leaving the temple and as he is leaving one of his disciples asked him about the temple and wanted him to observe the temple and its beauty right Jesus look at these look at this building look at this temple isn't it amazing look at these stones it was an imposing it was an imposing building I mentioned this, but I'll say it again. It's one of the um, astounding marvels and wonders of all of history, this temple that was built in Jesus' day, that was standing in Jesus' day. Its white stones that were stacked were four feet long, 12 inches wide, and eight inches thick. And as I mentioned, I don't know if I said these numbers, but its area... In other words, it's square footage of the entire temple, including its outer courts. Twelve football fields could sit down in this area. That's 72,000 square feet. That's pretty imposing. It's pretty big. And of course, Jesus looks at it and says, well, 
It's all about to come tumbling down. The Old Testament temple had been destroyed because of God's judgment. But many of the Jews believed that this temple that was there in their day, there in Jesus' day, it would stand until the consummation of the ages, until the end. So as Mark points out, Peter, James, and John, and, and Andrew asked this question then. Wait a minute, Jesus. If you're saying the temple's about to be destroyed, then tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Now for Jesus' disciples, again, if the temple was about to be destroyed, then the end must be right around the corner. In fact, this, this term that Mark uses accomplished which in some of your translations may say fulfilled it means literally to end completely or to finish so what his disciples are saying well jesus when is this going to end what's gonna i mean what's gonna be the sign for the end to come so that's their thinking if this temple is coming down then the end is here and thus the question which is why what i think prompts jesus response in hey well first let no one deceive you because obviously they already were a little deceived and didn't understand how this whole plan was going to lay out. They thought that, oh, if the temple comes down, then the end is here. So Jesus says, be careful. Don't let anybody deceive you. There's going to be many come in my name saying I'm he. And so he was clearly telling them, hold on. This is not the completion or the finish. This is not the end. But I want you to notice that the disciples are asking several questions. Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And if we look at Matthew's account of this very passage, there Matthew has, in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus saying, or the disciples saying, tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and what will be the sign of the end of the age? So if you look at that, compare the synopsis of the Gospels, you see they weren't just saying, tell us what's going to happen at the end. Because what a lot of people do in, in, in the heading in your Bible may say something like sign of the end of times or end of the ages. And so a lot of people say, oh, here's what's going to happen at the end. But I think it's important for us to take the context of what Jesus is doing and the question that was actually asked and see that he is answering these questions. When will these things be accomplished? And these things refer, it's generally agreed that these things refer to the tearing down of the temple. Because Jesus had just said, oh, that temple is beautiful, but it's about to be torn down stone by stone. And if you recall... In the temple teaching prior to this chapter, in Mark's account, as we've been walking through it, Jesus had given the parable of the tenant farmer in which Israel and her leaders, of course, were the wicked farmers, right? And they were the ones who killed all that the owner had sent their way. And finally, they even killed the owner's son. And as a result, the owner, who we would see uh, typifying God, is going to come. And when he comes, he will destroy the wicked farmers and give the farm to others. For the stone rejected by men have become the chief cornerstone. And the leaders of Israel understood, hey, he's talking about us. He's saying we're the wicked tenant farmers. In fact, in Matthew's account, in chapter 23 of Matthew, just prior to chapter 24, 
Jesus told the Pharisees they were just like their fathers because he said, y'all say we wouldn't have killed the prophets. And he says, their blood's on your hands. You would have killed them just like they did. In fact, they're about to kill the Son of God, right? And so all that's going on, and Jesus is giving these scenarios and these teachings that are very clear. And also in chapter 23 of Matthew's account, Jesus had just pronounced the seven woes upon the Pharisees, and he had wept over Jerusalem and declared, Your house has left you desolate. And he said all the cursings and the warnings that had been presented to that, up to that point would come down upon this generation. And so I want you to understand when Jesus is answering this question, the disciples' question is, when will these things take place? You've got to understand that in some sense he is answering a question right then and there. They wanted to know, hey, when is all this stuff going to take place and this temple destroyed? Now in their minds, again, they're thinking all this is going to happen, boom, right here. The temple's going to be destroyed. Uh, Israel, their house is desolate. The leadership's going to be gone. There's going to be new leadership. And then the end's going to come. But he's at least answering these questions. When will these things happen? In the sign of your coming and the end of the age. They've heard all these teachings and warnings. They no doubt would have had to be recalling the teachings of the Old Testament prophets and their teaching of the coming Messiah and the end of things, the end of the age. And since they've come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah at this point, then they would have to be assuming, we would assume, that this coming or appearing, as Matthew points out, is at hand, and somehow this coming would include taking down Israel and the temple and the rise to power and signal the end of the age. Because that's what was in their mind, right? This line, this, this lineage from David, there's going to be a new David rose up, rise, to rise up, and he's going to sit on the throne of David, and he's going to take over, and Israel will be powerful again. If this is the Messiah, then all this has got to happen. And so they say, when will these things be? When will this removal of the wicked leaders happen? When will the destruction of the temple take place? What will be the sign that it's happening? So we'll know it's happening. And also, what about the end of the age? So I think that regardless of what was in their minds and how they were thinking, and we can't do but so much guessing about what they were thinking, it's important for us to notice how Jesus answered the questions in order. The end is indeed coming. Jerusalem would be destroyed. In fact, in A.D. 70, just some 40 years after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, the sacrificial system would be gone. Of course, it ended when Jesus died, but the effects of that spiritual reality would not be fully evident to the world until A.D. 70 when the temple is actually gone. And many people believe that some of Jesus' answer to the disciples' questions concerning, is concerning the events of AD 70. So some think that in his answer is included what happened to Jerusalem when Rome sacked it and destroyed it and the temple was brought down. Some believe that also, part of his answer is concerning the final judgment, the end of the age. 
right? There are some people who believe that everything that's ever prophesied in the New Testament all happened before or at 70 AD. So you got kind of three groups here, and I'm going to explain these to you better. You got people who believe that some of Jesus' answer was for 70 AD, and some of it was for later. Some people believe all of it's for 70 AD and there's no more prophecy left to be fulfilled. And then there's some that believe everything that Jesus said only concerned the future and is none of it has happened yet. And that's why this passage, known as the Olivet Discourse, continues to be one of the most debated and written about passages in all of Scripture. Trying to determine what Jesus is saying here places you in a certain eschatological camp. All right? So it's important. It's not, I'm not going to say it's the most important, but it is an important passage. Mainly, I want you to be aware that there's a lot out there. And even when we're done here, in this passage, if you start reading stuff about this, there are things all over the map about this passage. And what I want to do is leave you with this to think on until next week. Because what I hope to do as a pastor is not, as I mentioned last week, to dogmatically tell you what to believe. And then you go off and when somebody says, what do you believe about this? Oh, well, I believe what my pastor believes. Well, what is that? I don't know. You'll have to ask him. I want you to trust the Holy Spirit to teach you and give you discernment about what this means and in the context of what it's written how it's written so think about this do you believe that some of these things could be pointing to the events of 70 AD and the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem do you think all these things could be pointing to that do you think none of these things could be pointing to that and they all point to something that still has yet to happen there's terms for this and I'll only give you this. Some of you inter are interested in this. Some of you not. You may have heard this term. Preterism. P-R-E-T-E-R-I-S-M. Preterism comes from a Latin term that just simply means past. So if you're a preterist, then you interpret prophecy, or at least some of it, as having happened in the past. Now, there is a hyperpreterism, which believes, as I mentioned, everything's in the past and nothing's in the future. So the entire book of Revelation and any prophecy in the New Testament all happened in 70 A.D., and we're living our best life now, and this is good it's going to get until who knows when. Jesus already came back. Everything already happened, and we're just moving on. There is a partial preterism, which means, as I mentioned, some of the things in all of the discourse and in prophecy pointed to what happened up to and during 70 AD and the rest is future will happen later and again there is futurism which believes everything's still in the future none of the prophecy in the New Testament has completely happened it's unfolding and will happen in the future some also believe that a lot of this falls into the now, not yet category. That many of the answers given to Jesus had a partial fulfillment in the first century, but will come to complete fulfillment at a later date. 
So some people believe even some of the things that happened up to and in 70 AD really happened, but they also pointed to something that will happen later or continue to happen all the way till Jesus comes back. And we've seen that a lot, right? We've talked about the now and the not yet. How there's a lot of things. The Bible says we've been seated in the heavenly places with Jesus. Ain't none of us sitting in heaven right now. So that means something now, and it means something later, right? It's a, re- it's a spiritual reality, but one that we're not participating in fully yet. For example, false Christ. We know that there were false Christs in the first century. John talks about much of the New Testament is written against false teaching, false Christs. I hope some of you are able to see there's some false Christs alive today. And there will be throughout the rest of this age. There are wars and rumors of wars, and they will continue to be. There were earthquakes and famines. All this can be read from the annals of history in the first century. They were true. They came true. Persecution happened. Selling out brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers. All those things happened. Paul says at one point, the gospel was in a sense proclaimed to all the world. So even that was fulfilled in the first century. But will it continue to be fulfilled? Families have been divided by the gospel. They continue to be so. I think it's fair to say that if you read any of the history from the first century and the sacking of Jerusalem until its total destruction, there was great tribulation experienced by Christians that's horrible to even read about, let alone imagine happen happening. See, we have a tendency to think everything's worse now than it's ever been, right? We look at the news, we, we see the headlines, and, oh, I mean, Jesus has to come back tomorrow because it's never been this bad. Yet you read the Bible and there's time where it tells us things like everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There was none who did good. That's pretty um, complete, none. You know, just last week, somebody told me again, I think we're living in modern-day Sodom and Gomorrah. Just the same. I don't know. I mean, I would think if it's just the same, then we might get the same kind of judgment. I think it's bad. And no doubt I get the I get the correlation. But we have a tendency to think that nothing's ever been as bad as it is now. And I think if you read history, you'll see it has been. And I think if we, you know, again, we pray every week for the persecuted church. There are people all of this world that have experienced as bad as it can get. To be sitting in church and have your pastor drug out the front door and shot and killed or his wife killed or his children killed. I mean, does persecution get any worse than that? I don't know how you can get worse than that. So I think it's, we, we have a tendency, somebody said it this way, we have a tendency to look at prophecy and scripture and read it from the 21st century backwards rather than from the 1st century forward. And that messes up our view of Scripture and our interpretation of it. So I guess what I don't want you to do is to sit around and look at the news and be so depressed and scared and worried because you're reading all that and listening to all these people tell you, oh, look, you know, what's happening in the Middle East right now or what the person that's our president or that's going to be running for president, he, he fulfills some random passage in Ezekiel back there that we didn't know, but now we see it clearly. And No, 
that's taking what's happening now and trying to put it into the Bible rather than reading the Bible and seeing how is God working out his plan this way rather than looking backwards. Now again, uh, I'm not telling you how to, how to interpret it, but I think how to study Scripture is important and how to look at Scripture and let Scripture interpret itself. Don't let the Atlanta Journal interpret Scripture for you or USA Today or whatever paper there is. So a lot of things for us to consider. I'm going to try to look at them all in detail. Uh, And again, know this. If we study these things and look at them, and as we do, it should increase your faith and not stress you out. It should not bring anxiety. Study Scripture. Seek God and the Holy Spirit to teach you all things so that no matter what the news tells you, you can be confident in the God of your salvation. That's what God... I think teaches us through his word. Jesus said it best. Though in the world you may have much tribulation, be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. So allow your belief about God in the Bible to drive your view of the end times and not the other way around. I think that's where most eschatology gets into trouble. People have a view of eschatology and then they read the Bible through that view of eschatology. If you study scripture from the old to the new, from the beginning to the end, I think that will drive what you believe about the end times. And that's more proper. And it's hard because a lot of us have been already taught. We see through rose-colored glasses. And it's hard to unsee that. It's true about everything that we've been taught. And good people that we love and that were honestly trying to teach us what they thought was right taught us some things that were incorrect. And it's hard to undo that in our brains. Right? We, all, we do that in life. We go about some things that are the wrong way to do it, but that's how we're taught to do it, and we refuse to look at a different way to do it, right? And that's certainly true in Scripture in our study of the end times. So think about those things, and we'll look at them next week. We'll walk through this passage more, uh, Lord willing, or next time that we're, we're looking at it together and um, see what we discover, okay? Let's pray.